Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it is a great pleasure for me to kick off this uh, very special lecture by one of the absolutely most special people we've had here at the Institute of World Politics over the past couple of decades. Uh, Professor Alberto Piedra, Ambassador Alberto Piedra, has been a dear friend of mine personally. And by the way, I'm John Lenchowski. I'm president of the Institute. Um, and, uh, and, and, and a friend, a mentor, a, a, and, and professor to so many of our students here. Uh, Alberto has, uh, is the Donald E. Bentley Professor of Political Economy here at IWP, where he has been teaching our core course on the Western moral tradition in American foreign policy. Alberto is, has been a diplomat, an economist, and perhaps most important, uh, a, a moral philosopher. And he brings together all of these disciplines and the, the practice of, of, of statecraft to his teaching here in the classroom uh, where he is, is, you know, because we here at IWP teach all of the different instruments of national power. We teach diplomacy, the many arts of public diplomacy, information policy, uh, military strategy, intelligence, counterintelligence, economic strategy, the whole list of these things these are all instruments of power, and as I like to say, power like liberty uh, can be abused, is frequently abused, and, uh, and there, but we would like our students here who are learning how to use power uh, to, to use it responsibly, prudently, and ethically. Because when it is not used properly, we can lose the war, in the moral battle space, which often can have strategic implications that are greater than maybe the, the, than the material battle space. So Al Alberto uh, has been teaching this, and, and, and in the process of doing so, in the process of exposing students who should have in college studied Plato and Aristotle and Augustine and Aquinas and the other great uh, political and moral philosophers of the ages, but now don't because most American colleges have junked the traditional uh, lib core liberal arts curriculum in favor of what I call the 2000 course smorgasbord, where the children just want to eat dessert and not their vegetables. They come fundamentally to professional schools without having wrestled with the great questions of life, uh, and, and, and the meaning of their lives, whether they will be accountable for how they live their lives, not to mention the questions of developing proper prudential moral reasoning. Uh, and, and so this is what, this is the core. There's scarcely a more important civilizational task to be done in any educational institution. And Alberto has been the anchor of doing this here at IWP. And it is absolutely central to the mission of this school that this task be done. Well, Alberto has served as U.S. Ambassador to Guatemala back during the, the days when uh, we were in the midst of the Central American Wars, an incredibly sensitive and strategic position. He was U.S. Representative of the Economic and Social Council of the Organization of American States. 
senior advisor at the Bureau of Inter-American Affairs at the State Department. He served as, at the U.S. Mission of the United Nations, uh, to the United Nations as senior, senior area advisor for Latin America. Um, he was uh, director of the Latin American Institute and chairman of the Department of Economics and Business at Catholic University of America. He is the author of, of many books um, one of his more recent ones is on the whole subject of natural law as the foundation of an effective economy, where he precisely brings his, uh, his prudential moral reasoning uh, to the task of, 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 uh, of, of economic systems and behavior in, 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 in the commercial world. So without further ado, I just want to say that it has been one of the great privileges of my life to be in the company of this man, to have him join our faculty. It's been an incredible honor. This man is a national treasure who has, has I just thank God that he has been able to mentor so many of the students who have come through our school. So I thank you, Alberto, for the extraordinary contributions you've made to our country, to our civilization, to our school, and, uh, and, and I, I just want to say you are the paterfamilias of a truly great American family, and, and I just I thank you for being our, my and our friend. So God bless you. The floor is yours. Thank you, John. I never realized how you exaggerate. <laughs> it's such a tremendous exaggeration that I feel embarrassed even to be present here. Under, uh, understatement. Understatement. <laughs> no, no, it's a wonder. He's, a, uh, he's been a friend of mine for many years. We met at the State Department. He was in, uh, I, when I was ambassador, he was, uh, exactly your position was in Russian affairs, wasn't it? At the State Department, and we've been friends ever since. I've been part of this institute since it was founded. He has done a wonderful job. He has uh, educated, so we say, uh, many, many students here who I think have left this excellent school of higher learning, always being very proud that he that they stayed here for a number of years and got their degrees so I want to thank you John you're an exceptional person you know we're very fond of you we have been in the past and we are and every day when I know you more and more I, I admire you for what you have done this is a great thing that you have here in this Institute so thank you thank you very much well I would like to welcome all of you here um, there are so many people that I know here. I can't mention them all. The one that I have right in front of me here is Ambassador Phil. Uh, Phil, you know, we've been friends for a long time. You were ambassador to Barbados. There are other people here that I've known, and I hope they'll excuse me if I don't mention them directly, but so many friends. So therefore, instead of uh, starting my talk by saying, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna skip that and just say, friends of mine, lovable friends of mine, that I have a tremendous esteem, and I admire all of you, and I thank you for the way you not only treated me, but my dear wife, Edita, that I miss very much, even today, 
I wish you were here today. So anyhow, don't pay attention to me because I get sentimentally very easily sentimental, so don't ignore me. But uh, we were a very happy marriage, and I miss her every day more and more. Well, anyhow, my job here today is to explain a little bit about my experience. Now, everything I want to tell you was directly, in other words, in, in, in conversation we had with Fidel himself, or with members of his cabinet and government. I'm going to divide the talk in three parts. The first part is before the revolution, during the revolution, and my flight from Cuba. I use the word flight because it was a real flight, and I'll explain it later. Now, the first thing, very little can be said about Fidel Castro in the past. Uh, I would say that, for, as far as I know, I didn't. I, I knew him at the university. We were colleagues at the University of Havana, and that's where I met him, and that's where I, I really got to know him a little bit better. But uh, uh, Fidel uh, was originally from Santiago de Cuba, which is at the eastern part of the island. Uh, I would say that he was from, a, a, how would you say, middle class, upper class, uh, social standing, and I never met his parents. And but I heard, I heard that the marriage was because Fidel, uh, his father Fidel's father was married twice. The first time he married was somebody that I don't remember who it was, and then finally with Fidel's mother. But I'm going to skip that, uh, and I'm going to go to one incident which I think, at least in my case, explained the whole philosophy of Fidel Castro. One day while I was at home, that was I cannot repeat prior to the revolution. He knocked at the door of my home. I went and opened the door, and there was Fidel. He had to come on in, and uh, he sat down in the living room with me. He put his arms, you know, like we do in Spanish tradition, like a sort of an abrazo. And then he said the following. Well, after a little, uh, you know, conversation. And he said, you know, Alberto, you and I think the same way. We were both brought up in the Jesuit school, and I think you know that I'm running for president of the Student Association of the university. And uh, you know, we share many values, so I was wondering would you be interested in voting for me? He wanted to become the president of the Student Association. I looked at him and he started explaining all his background in terms of values and blah, blah, blah. I, you know, I didn't say anything. At that time, I knew very little. I just knew it from the university at, the, at school. Well, anyhow, to make a long story short, that's the first indication I had of the hypocrisy because I knew perfectly well that what he was saying was not true. It was completely false. But he pretended, and that's a typical characteristic of Fidel Castro, pretending one thing in one area and then doing exactly the opposite in another area. Well, I just wanted to mention you because that was the first indication that I really had, even though I knew certain things that he was doing at the university, which uh, were shady. Uh, especially, I don't know if you remember the revolution in Bogota, in Colombia, when Gaetan was assassinated. Our friend Fidel went over, and of course he was already a part of the revolution movement in Colombia also, and uh, he... Uh, he, he was almost imprisoned in Colombia by the Colombian government. 
But in, it so happened that a, a friend of ours who was ambassador, Cuban ambassador in Bogota, uh, was able to use his influence and he got him out of Colombia. Years later, he was telling me, you know what, the greatest mistake I made in my life was that he wasn't in prison in Colombia. But anyhow, that's, I just wanted to mention this uh, as an indication of my knowledge of Fidel Castro was from way back, uh, the university years. Now, I'm going to skip from there to the, the era of uh, revolution. As you all know, the revolution, or the movements, at least when it came into Havana, uh, was on the 31st of December, 1956? Correct me, Phil. Well, anyhow, in, in, in the mid-50s. 59. 50, oh, that's right, I'm sorry. 50, you see, I, <laughs> th th there's so many data that it's, it's in, in, in difficult sometimes to, you know, to keep, to keep track. Mm -hmm. Well, anyhow, we were planning on the 31st of December to go to a party which we had been invited. I told her, Dita, Dita, the situation is very bad, something's gonna happen. I had that intuition that something's gonna happen. And that morning at three or four o'clock in the morning, my uncle and aunt, and uh, by the way, some of you may have known Waldo Salazar, uh, they called uh, me and he said, Alberto, get ready because Batista has fled the country and he's on his way to the Dominican Republic. And I said, thank you very much. And uh, rightly so. At, in the morning, the next morning, uh, you saw these, you know, the, how do you call these, uh, jeeps and so forth with the, the revolutionary flags and so forth. And with the, the, the how do you call this, the, the milicianos, what we call in Spanish, coming into Havana. Uh, and that here is another indication of the hypocrisy of Fidel Castro. Guess one of the first places he went when he came through Columbia Avenue, or Avenida called Columbia, uh, stopped before the College of Belén, where he went to school, he, although he was in Santiago Mall, to embrace the flag and to show his support to embrace the flag and show his support for the Jesuits above all. Can you imagine? I mean, that's why, I mean, you had to know Fidel Castro to know. Let me clarify one thing. He's brilliant. I don't deny that. He's extremely capable. He's ruthless and he's capable. You know, the difference between Fidel and, and Raul, you know what it is? If Fidel was here right now, and he wanted to get rid of my good friend Michael here. He would come to you and he said, oh, Michael, how are you, blah, 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 blah. And then he would go out. He would go talk with his henchmen. And when you left, they would assassinate you. But that's not the only thing. Afterwards, he would be going to your family to say, oh, how sorry I'm out there. He did that with Camilo Cienfuegos and, and others. In, and this is true. I mean, the history will prove that this is correct, what he said. I mean, this is the way he operates. That's why he has fooled so many people here in Europe and so forth. And they consider him a hero. I'm not trying to deny his, his capacity for doing a lot of things that are also probably good. But there's no doubt in my mind 
that one of the main characteristics of Fidel Castro is hypocrisy, and that is what has completely fooled so many people here in the United States and in Europe. Well, anyhow, this is the situation as existed the 1st of January. I said to myself, what are we going to do? I told Edita, what are we going to do? I mean, we have to do something because they are sacking homes and, uh, of pro-Batista people who have been discovered, but by mistake they could come to ours also. So what are we going to do? I said, look, do we have a Cuban flag? You know, to show, show the Cuban flag was showing support for the revolution. And this way we can safeguard the situation if, they say, if, they are, if the moment arrives. So I said, the, the butler told me, uh, he said, no, uh, sir, we, we don't have the Cuban flag. And I said, well, make one. I said, how, how, I said, how can you make one? I said, just look, red, white, and blue. Tie them all together, and that's it. It might look like a French flag or another flag, or but nevertheless, it shows some type of support and put it in the front of, 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 of our home in the building. And we, and we did that. So fortunately, of course, nothing happened. They, they came through, they, they sacked the house in front of ours, but ours, they did nothing. But unfortunately, I could say much more about this, which is a very, and I'll never forget because I told Edita, this is a tragedy. What's going to happen in Cuba is a disaster, at least from our point of view. I mean, some people might be very happy, but from our point of view, it's the end of an era. Our world is coming to an end. Oh, yeah, how is it possible? I say, we wait and see. The way we are accustomed to live, this is finished. Now, you won't see it in the beginning, but you will see it later. And I'll never forget one of the things that Edita, Edita's my wife, was my wife, always used to say, I'll never forget the words, but Alberto, why be fearful? We have done nothing. You've never been involved in politics in Cuba. You have no career of uh, gangsters. Then why should we worry? This is a revolution like other revolutions in, in Latin America. You change one dictator for another. But the life in general of everybody continues to be the same. Nothing has changed, or nothing will change. I said, Edita, you're wrong. You will forgive me for saying it. Don't you realize that if Fidel is, like I am assuming that he is, a real communist, or at least sympathetic to a communist regime, you, you are an enemy of the state, by definition, just by your appearance, just by the way you lived in the past. You will never be accepted unless you completely humiliate you in front of them. And now you're sure, I said, yes, you'll see. Let's wait and see what's going to happen in the future. Well, anyhow, things developed, and every day there was some new event that seemed to give proof to what I was saying. Now, how do you think if you were the leader of a revolution of that type, and you wanted to control the state, what are the positions of importance that would you give uh, to surround you at the highest levels of government? I would say three, especially. What are they? Minister of the Interior, 
Why? Because in Latin America, the Minister of the Interior is the one who runs the equivalent of CIA, FBI, and all that. Because this is the way you're going to control the country. So the Ministry of the Interior is the first one. What is the second one, which is extremely important? The Ministry of Education. We have to educate a new group of young people that are in love with the revolution. That's the, third, the second one. And you will find, you will, re, you will see for yourself later on that they're going to start eliminating all private schools and so which is exactly what happened. And the third one, or the less important, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Those three, and you will see that Fidel, and this is exactly what Fidel did. For example, with children. When they went to school, kindergarten, mind you, kindergarten, the professor or the teacher would say, <laughs> it's, it's incredible, he would say, children, would you love candy? And the children, oh, yes, yes, candy, candy. And then he's, <laughs> the teacher would say, all right, ask. Papa Dios, you know, Papa Dios means God. Uh, he said, Papa Dios to give you candy. Close your eyes, wait a second, then open your eyes. Do you have candy? No, not at all. Then he would say, or the teacher would say, this is kindergarten. The teacher would say, ask Fidel Castro to give you candy. And they distributed the candy to all the children. And then he would say, or she would say, who is more important, God or Fidel? You know, this is a process of indoctrination which starts not when you're at the university. From the very beginning, at the very early stages of life. Now, this is some of the basic principles that, that they were being applied. But then he started passing laws. Laws that that would destroy the entire social and economic system of Cuba. And guess what he did? In Cuba, there was the University of Havana, which the government owned, well, government owned, it was run by the government, basically. And they had just recently opened a branch of Villanova University in Havana, which is called Universidad de Villanueva which was supposedly, according to Fidel Castro and all the revolution, it was supposed to be for the upper classes and so forth, to avoid you know, some of the disturbances that always occurred at the University of Havana, where it was strikes and blah, blah, blah. And it was run by the Augustinian father, and I was a, I was a professor for one month there when it was opened. So the University of Villanova. You know, when when I think about these things now, I laugh. But it's, it's one day, you know, he would go to to the to the masses with these long speeches of ours, and so, and he would say, "Pueblo de Cuba, people of Cuba, don't you think that people who did not had no empathy for the revolution, and they kept giving classes." and they didn't close the university in support of the revolution. What do you think we should do with them? Don't you think we should punish them? This is true. With his open arm. And they said, of course, for the populace, yeah, 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 Fidel, Fidel, Fidel. And 
Well, we should punish them, don't you think so? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing, but now I laugh. He said, but I'm a generous person. And I could close the university in 24 hours. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be generous with the students and with the professors. So what I'm going to do is, it's Machiavellian, believe me. All degrees, all credits granted during those years of the revolution movement are going to be cancelled as considered zero. The state will not recognize them at all. Well, that's a coup de grace. It's the end of the, he was destroying the university without destroying it as such. This is the way he handled things. And of course, the masses at that time at the beginning, oh, Fidel, Fidel, adelante, adelante. Adelante means go ahead, go ahead. They were enthused with the whole idea that he was. And he did it in, in, in how would you say it, in a spirit of generosity that he was forgiving the errors of the University of Villanova. And so, well, anyhow, he destroyed the university finally in the end because, uh, but that came a few months later. Now, I don't want to detain myself too much. I told you somebody, no, Michael, you do this to me, all right, when you think I should shut up, so I won't bore you. So what happened then, of course? Imagine the laws that he began to pass. All of this was by decree. Well, no, of course, he's no Congress, nothing. All of these people were fleeing the country or wherever. They would try to get out. So there was nothing in Congress. So it was purely by decree. Now, what would you think? There's a saying of you know, in Rome and the Empire, divisa is conquer. You divide and you conquer. You divide people, one against the other. He said, I've promised all the peasants in Cuba that we're going to have agrarian reform. And this is exactly what we're going to do. So we're going to, you know, nationalize land in Cuba. However, we're going to nationalize only foreign entities or foreign properties, sugar mills or whatever. The Cubans, no, we're not going to touch them because this is the revolution of the royal palms. He used to las palmas reales, which is a symbol of Cuba, the beautiful royal palms. So we are going to do it this way. It's going to be a revolution of the royal. So we're going to get rid of foreign investments here and all foreign properties so they become nationalized, they become Cuban, Cubanos, Cubanos. Get rid of imperialists. Get rid of them all. And what do you think the reaction was? This is where you see the selfishness of all of us. We all have some selfishness with it, and envy and jealousy. The Cuban owners, I shouldn't say this because friends of ours, in general, when they said they were to nationalize the Americans, but not touch the Cubans, do you think they protested? Not at all. Oh, they're not going to touch us. Well, that didn't last very long. All of this was in the first two or, two or three months. It didn't last very long. Shortly afterwards, what happened? He said, oh, but you know, 
I'm sorry laughing, but I, I, I said, oh, brilliant, he's a brilliant man. I mean, this business, people say he's stupid. Like Senator Goldwater, when I was here, I came to see him at the third month of the revolution. He said, he said, oh, he won't last with you. I said, no, he won't. He will. Just the opposite. Oh, because he's an idiot. I said, he's not an idiot. He's brilliant. He, he's going to fool everybody. Well, anyhow, to make a long story short, after, you know what he did? We have to make a distinction, that's what divisa, divide, between the large owners of property and those who are not large owners of there. So, of course, again, the same problem. You know, the ones who were, or had small plots of land, they're not gonna touch me. If they touch the, that's their problem. Again, the same, until, at the end, he took everything. Well, anyhow. I don't have time to go more in detail. But you see the process, divide, divide one sector of society against the other, and they themselves are going to destroy each other. So this is what he did. But he was, that was not enough. Shortly afterward, he said, ah. Oh. And you know how he would talk, ah, Juan, or Juan, or Cuba, Cuba, Cuba. And, well, anyhow. The next thing he said, but you know, we have to pay attention to one thing. Property owners, apartment buildings and so forth, they are, the rents they are paying are too high. So what did he do? Passed a decree. He said, all rents are going to be reduced by 50%. So in other words, if you were, let's assume at that time, an, an apartment, in one of these buildings, whatever you were renting at $200 a month, $100 they would pay the who was living there. But, but, at the same time, he increased taxes in the same. So what happened, I tell you this because of experience, I mean, I'm not inventing this, I, I, we went through it, my, my, in my case. How can you maintain an apartment building? under these conditions. It's impossible because where is the revenue? They destroy it completely. So, so the whole question of property ownership, the whole question of risk, and then another thing he did, all this gradually in the first two or three months, which, which, which is incredible, he said, assume in New York, this was in Havana, and Havana, and I'm so I want to say parenthesis. You know, everybody thinks Havana was just uh, prostitution, gambling, and blah blah blah, which is not true. I mean, the gambling and prostitution that took place in Havana was no greater than it takes place. I don't know. I suppose in Las Vegas or wherever, and so forth, or Atlantic City, not to mention uh, Mexico City. Uh, all over Latin America, that's all. But can you imagine, if he does this, what was the result? He's destroying the whole system. Because, would you invest? I don't know, I had some friends of mine, and they said, oh, now is the time to buy. I said, are you crazy? They're gonna nationalize after you're gonna pay the money and then they're gonna nationalize within the next three of which is exactly what happened. So it was a gradual, 
this is, I think, the brilliant tactics and strategy of Hidoka. Doing it gradually. If he would have, from the very first day, he would have completely passed these types of legislation, he would have had more opposition. But everybody thought that not that ought to touch me. You know, I'm free. I'm satisfied. Which, of course, was ridiculous because it had in the end. Well, this was gradually done. So, therefore, he passed the ground reform first, then he passed the, what he called the, Ur la, 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 Urbana, the, um, the urban uh, reform, which he called. I, I'm going to skip a lot of these, but um, we have to do the to go to my flight, which I think might be interesting. Well, anyhow, again, Edita. I said, Edita, let's prepare things to go to the United States. We still can leave the country. There's no prohibition because we're not involved in politics. So we didn't get involved necessarily that they would not permit us to leave the country. Let's do it now. We had two children. We were expecting the third, Pedro. Uh, she was, uh, yeah. Uh, and I said, Edita, let's go. Uh, and then the same story. But Alberto, why did you do it? <laughs> like other friends of mine who said, uh, and by the way, the finance, financial aspects of Fidel Castro don't blame only the Swedes and the Europeans and the left and so forth. No, no, the wealthy classes, the yacht club and the country club in Havana, which we were members. You, the cars, Viva Fidel. How stupid, I'm sorry, I, should, I shouldn't say this because I, I, I know some of them very well. And they're now all in exile. Hold on there, I said, look, don't you realize what's going on? This is a communist takeover. The only thing is that they're doing much better than... The, they, they were following, in my opinion, Gramsci and, and the historical school, the social studies in, in Frankfurt. He, he followed his own policy, but he was getting results. Gradually, don't do it right away. Because then you, you create antagonism, you create antipathy, you create all sorts of... No, do it gradually. People are, you know, it's like anesthesia. Gradually. And they go along. Dancing in the yacht club. Playing golf at the country club. I remember one of the wealthiest cattle ranchers in Cuba very good friend of ours. I was a very good friend of his son. And he called me and he said, Alberto, can you come over? I said, of course, yes, right away. That was at the very beginning, out of two or three months. And he said, you know, Alberto, I have a million dollars I have to invest. Don't you think it would be a good idea to invest it now? I said, here in Cuba? I said, yes, because what he's doing is uh, following the papal encyclicals. Because that's another thing. That was mentioned all the time. I'm following the papers, the secularists of the Catholic Church. And unfortunately, and I shouldn't say this, or I should say it because it's the truth, many of the priests and nuns were very pro-Fidel Castro, and then they paid the controversy later on, but it was too late. So in other words, you had this particular situation in which people were so fooled by Fidel Castro thinking 
that everything was okay. So it's a gradual process. Brilliant. And that, it's not like the French Revolution where they burned schools or there were churches and where they killed this and the other thing. And they go, no, no, no. It was not like that. Just the opposite. Gradual. Or the Russian Revolution, of course. French Revolution, the Russian Revolution. It was different. So it was a gradual process. Well, anyhow, to make a long story short, because it's not just... Michael, where's Michael? Michael, you remember you told me to stop it. I'm going to jump a lot of things that I could tell you about the whole... Well, now, you're going to ask me, how is it possible that one day Fidel Castro, not he, not he, the Minister of, the, of, uh, of Commerce, which is the Secretary of Commerce equivalent, calls me, Raul Teperoria, and he said, and that was in the third, second or third month, he said, Alberto, Fidel once told me that, why don't you become my, at that time, the Undersecretary of Commerce in Cuba was the Director de Exportaciones and Exportaciones, the Director of Exports and Imports. It's the, part the, it's the minister who gives all the permissions to be anything that to be exported or anything that to be imported. And it lends up to all sorts of corruption, which I don't go into it, but anyhow. And he said, do you want to become it? I said, oh, let me think of it. You see, another thing you have to be very careful. In a communist regime, you have to be very careful how you react to, to the requests, I would say, of the government. Because if you deny it, the immediate suspicion, the suspicion comes, oh, he's a counter of, he doesn't like the revolution. So I didn't say yes or no, I said, that's certain things that I don't like to say. Uh, but the church, or the church, let's put it this way, not the church, certain sectors within the church were greatly responsible for some of the things that happened. Because they were so enamored with the revolution, because he propagated the whole concept, and they were such idiotic that they followed his ideas, and they would all believe in his idea. That he was doing it following the papal encyclicals, the encyclicals, or Rerum Novarum, Quadragesimo Ano. It's it's incredible how people. So I I remember I went to a priest that I knew, and I told him. And the theory was, oh, no, no, Alberto, you should join the government. Because by joining the government, it's at least, you know, it's a, it makes a difference. I said, you're wrong. They are using me. Because when, when they go to an international organization, they are going to present, oh, Alberto is here. Alberto is no communist. Alberto is no leftist in the sense of radical leftist. I don't have anything against left as such, but these radical left. How can this be a communist regime? They're using me. Don't you see I'm, I'm a use? They're using me? Well, anyhow, to make again a long story short, because now I would go. I mean, it, it, it was a continuous process and anguish. And then I had a sort of a battle with my own wife. Not because of any serious problem, but because she could not, at the beginning at least, grasp the tragedy of the whole thing. 
which was a problem. Well, let me jump because I just want to. Uh, this is the situation which I want to said, we have to get out of here. One way or the other, we're going to get out. Okay, she, Edita was a typical woman of uh, our time. She did what her husband told her. <laughs> she, 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 she would present her point of view, but in the end, she reasoned it out and she said yes. So therefore, we started preparing for the departure. Now, how do we do it? Now, how can you leave the government of a, a communist regime without the danger of being accused of a counter-revolutionary. <coughs> that you're not sympathetic with the revolution, so you are, by definition, a counter-revolution. So how do you think I did it? I said, Edita, I have to find a solution to this problem. I know it's very difficult just to leave, unless we leave as refugees, and I don't want to leave as refugees. I want to leave as, as, as a tourist to the United States, because my father had a one of these visas, permanent visas, to come to the United States, so I had no problem in terms of visa here at all. I said, we have to find a solution to the problem. So what did I do? I started thinking and thinking, you know the solution? I said, I went to the ministry and I said to Raul Seperonilla, you know Raul? We were at that time, Berto and Raul. Uh, his first name. And he said, you know, Raul, I've decided, with your permission, I think I would be, I've never lied in my life. I said, you know, Raul, I think, in all honesty, that it would be more useful to the revolution if I finished my PhD in Georgetown. Because I was, I, the only thing I needed was my comprehensive and the theater. And you know, lo and behold, Alberta, you're right. You should go back and then return to Cuba, Havana, and you're going to be more useful for Fidel. I said, you see, I'm glad you agree with me. I said to him, how can I lie with a straight face? I'm going to be honest with you. I think Raul Sabedo Nia knew perfectly well what I was because he was not a communist, he was an opportunist. He was a journalist. Do you remember those who were in Cuba? So I think he, but that's why I will always be grateful to him from that point of view. That he, not only did he give me permission to leave, but with a diplomatic passport, which opened many doors in Europe, especially, and so on. But anyway, I didn't want to go to Europe, I wanted to go to the United States. This, I said, Edita, the United States is the last bastion of freedom in the Western world. I mean, I know that the United States is not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But it's the last bastion. And as long as I can educate my children the way I want to educate them, as long as I can teach them the values that I was taught, I remember my mother since I was a child, the three things he, and this was much before the revolution, oh, years before. He said, you know, Alberto, there's one thing that your parents are going to leave that they never can take away from you unless you give it up. That's your faith, your education, and your background. Be always proud of these three elements. 
That they were not, I, I always remember that because when the revolution came, that's exactly what the only thing that remained. Because all the other things were gone. Well, anyhow, we prepared the departure, and that's a nice story. I don't have too much time to it, because only a question. Hmm? Are you sure? Yeah, yes. I don't want to bore you. You know, so I say, my students, you, you start yawning and so forth, and uh, so please, if, if you are bored, don't, don't, don't hesitate. But it's, 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 it's a tragedy. Now, I know that so many of you say, I Fidel Castro was the savior of Cuba and so forth. I'm, I don't deny that Fidel Castro had his qualities and so forth. But in my opinion, the way he did it, and the way he fooled people was evil. Because it really, the whole thing was based on a lie. He never from the very beginning said, I'm a communist or I'm this about. He The whole propaganda or the whole was on the basis of doing what the church told him. Which is a lie. Now we knew, at least I knew it, well, anyhow, it, the, the story of my departure from Cuba is another story. How was I going to leave the country to finish my PhD and leave Edita behind with two children and a half? No, two children and three quarters, excuse me. <coughs> was I going to, how could I do that? And I had to find a way out. I don't know, I didn't know exactly how to do it. I said, but we have to do So I, I started preparing the whole thing. Uh, Edita, I remember, prepared. Well, this is comes later, but anyhow. I, I, you know, I, we started preparing the departure. So what did I do? I said, look, we are friends of several ambassadors here, socially speaking. And some of them were real close friends. Uh, so I went to see one of them, and I said, "Chiriwaga was one of them, a country in Latin America." I said, "Look, I want to ask a favor of you." I knew it quite well. So I said, "Look, I'm planning to leave the country, but I want to leave Edita behind because I can't. If I take Edita, they won't let me go. You know why, don't? No? They want Edita as a hostage." Because as long as Edita was in, the, in Cuba, they knew I, there were certain things I wouldn't do. Because I, I had two children, as I said, and three quarters. So I, I said, well, how are we going to do this? And, and, and it was a continuous process of, of, of trying to find solutions. Do you understand the anguish? What are we going to do? So I talked with this and. He said, no, Alberto, don't worry. Everything will be all right. I will personally take the, go to your home in the embassy car with the embassy flag, and I will take Edita and the children take him home to, to the embassy. And they'll be protected under the flag of this particular country. So I said, okay, fine, thank you, I, I feel. So I did leave, finally. But you know what I did? I exported my old car. I was minister. And Juba told you I was the, how do you say, the deputy assistant or deputy. Under secretary. Under secretary. Thank you. 
And I said, I, I could do it. So I said, and if Raul Saperoni, I have to admit, from that point of view, he never hesitated did in complying with my request. So he did it. And finally I left, but I left Edita behind with the two children. And I was, even though I had the guarantee from the, you know how many refugees after after Edita left also, because that, then later she left also, thank God. Do you know how many people were refugees in my home? 350. Asking for political asylum, because my home became an embassy. Thanks to these friends of ours, really. But anyhow, the fact is that uh, so there, under those circumstances, they were, you know, uh, protected. No, really, I think we have to put the movie. Uh, are there any questions? Or no questions. Oh, yeah. Are there any questions? I'm sorry. Yes. Um, the, uh, I wondered, when did you think Del became a Marxist, or was he just an opportunist? I still think he's not a 100% Marxist. So he's basically an opportunist? Yes. Che Guevara is different. Che Guevara is a hardcore communist. I'll tell you a story. I mean, I could tell you so many different stories. I was a good friend of a priest, Capuchin. Capuchin, how do you say, how do you say in English? Yeah. And he was a wonderful human being. And he used to go to jail and Morro, and La Cabaña. He used to go to La Cabaña, which is a fort, and became the prison to hear the confessions or the extreme unction or whatever it is of those who are going to be shot the next day. And he, this is true, absolutely true. He went one day and he saw a list of young people that were going to be shot the following day, so-and-so. His name, I forgot his name. I knew him, by the way. And he said, Father, this guy is innocent. He has never been involved in any problem. In politics, in politics or any other area. And Che Guevara looked at him and he said, Father, you're right. We must have made a mistake. Don't worry, go home. And I'd eliminate it from the list of those who are going to be shot tomorrow. This priest said, thank you, Comandante. He was at that time, he was Comandante Guevara. Comandante Guevara, muchas gracias, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I'll come next week to to see. Well, the following week he went back for another reason, or for the same reason, for, for, for confess or whatever. And the first thing he saw among those that had been shot was this guy. So he went to see El Comandante Guevara and he said, Comandante, how is it possible you told me that he was going to eliminate him from the list? How could you have done this? You know what Che Guevara told him? Hi, Father. Are you not aware that I was wearing a mask? That was not Che Guevara who was talking to you. It was somebody else. We are communists. He's a, according to us, he's a counter-revolution. He should be shot. Can you imagine the hypocrisy? It's, 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 I, I, you know, this could go on and on and on because it's, there are so many things that went on. Now, 
the bottom line of all this, you can see the anguish that Edita and I went through with that two children, Alberto and Javier. Pedro was still in limbo somewhere. And we went through all these problems. <laughs> you see, no, you tell me when I should go because we can have to see the video. Your Excellency. Excuse me? Your Excellency, to follow up. <laughs> follow up? To follow up on the ideological question. Yes. Uh, Fidel Castro was fascinated by Jose Antonio Primo de Rivera. Can you comment on that when he was very young? Because of the Falange, Española. Uh, that's, that's because right. anything would send it to be control. Uh, Primo de Rivera, you mean Primo de Rivera? You're talking about Primo de Rivera in Spain. Uh -huh. yes. Antonio. Sí, José Antonio, sí. De Falange. El fundador de, de la Falange. La Falange Española. You mean, why is it? Well, he was first fascinated by fascism. Yes. Fascism didn't work out. That's correct. He used Marxism as a tool. That's correct. Of That's power. Why. That's why I'm telling you, okay. I think I said at the beginning that I don't think he was a hardcore communist, he was an opportunist. If Hitler would have won the war, he would have become a Nazi. Anything that spells control. Do you know what the bottom line of Fidel Castro is? It's not communist such. Power. He wants power. And he has power. Power to say, you go to the firing squad. Or you don't go to the firing squad. And I, I, I visualize, that's why I told Edita from the very beginning, even prior to the revolution, I said, Edita, we have to get out of here. I don't want my children to be educated in, in an ambiance which is counter to all the values that you and I share. We have certain values. Are you going to give them up? We, we have to get out. And he said, well, what are we going to do in the state? I said, look, my parents, you know, at that time, things have changed. You shouldn't have all eggs in one basket. My parents always had certain funds in New York. I said, look, Edita, we have sufficient funds in New York, at least for the first three or four months or five months, until I find a job to live. I mean, it's not a question that when I arrive in New York or in Washington or whatever it is, that I have to I don't know, wash dishes. Because thank God, from that point of view, we'll, in a three or four month period with my education, I can find a job which is more suitable. So this is the way we, we felt. I said, but which is the greatest gift God has given man? Freedom. We can use that freedom for good, but we can use it also for evil. It depends on our will. Because we can decide. This is one of the problems that we face today. That nobody, well nobody, I shouldn't say nobody. Most people today don't even know the difference between right and wrong. The difference has been blurred to such a degree that things that are evil, evil, intrinsically evil, are considered good. 
the, the unfortunate, this is true. It's, it's a tragedy, but it's true. I said, in the United States, at least, I think, unfortunate things are developed in such a way that I'm not very optimistic about the future. Although I should say this as a t teacher, but I have faith in the young people of America. But th this is true. We have lost the sense, of, which are the two greatest things, the dignity of the human person. That's why freedom is so important. But freedom, the, the, the freedom is a two-edged sword. Freedom can turn into license. I have the freedom to do whatever I damn please. I'm sorry, damn please. No, you don't. Of course, you have the physical freedom to do so, but you don't have the moral freedom. And this is one of the things we have, we have, unfortunately, we're losing it here also. I hope not, but you see, when God created the universe, what did he do? He set a certain physical laws, like the law of gravity and so forth and so forth, physical laws. However, he didn't stop with physical laws. He also gave moral laws or ethical laws. In other words, for people to act correctly so the society will progress. So therefore we have the moral law just the same as the physical law. Now, unfortunately, the moral aspects of it is slowly disappearing because we have lost that sin. I, I don't want to get big. Now I'm deviating into a different area. The whole question of natural law, which uh, I don't want to get involved now because then that's a topic in itself. But we are losing that. But I told Edita, right now, the only solution is the United States. I said, let's go to Europe. I said, no, Europe is, is on the verge of having all sorts of problems. The United States at least has stability. And that's why the first thing we did is come here. I, I can assure you, this is true. When I arrived in Miami, you know, I told you I exported my own car. So I landed with my car in Miami. And at that time, there was a ferry between Havana and, uh, and Miami. I almost felt like kissing the ground. That sense of, uh, are my children going to accuse me in front of the government? Because you see, that's another thing people don't realize. In the communist regime, your loyalty of the children is not the parents, the loyalty is to the state. And people don't realize that. How many people in Havana, I can show you, children accused their parents because they were leaving at the airport, more or less camouflaged, and they accused them and sent them to jail. Their own parents. Why? Because they were taught that their real allegiance was the state. The state is at the service of man, not the other way around. You know, this business of, all right, again, I don't want to deviate because then we go off on a tangent. And a, but do you understand? It, 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 it was a difficult period of time. I have to give credit to my wife. She put up with this. Never, never, never did she complain. Never. To come to the United States, 
you know, we, we, it's, 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 thank God I knew quite a lot of people. I had been in Georgetown and so forth. But in, 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 now another thing I do want to say, and I think I should say, I'm a Cuban by name, by birth, and I'm proud to be a Cuban. This story that Cuba was a total disaster prior to Fidel Castro, that's not true. Culturally speaking, Cuba was horrible. That's why the, the email, I mean the video I want to show it to you. Yes. Yes. Uh, I have a question about the uh, Obama administration revive the diplomatic uh, relationship with Cuba. Uh, the, I want your opinion on that. Uh, reviving the uh, diplomatic relationship with, with Cuba. Uh, I'm, I'm talking between the U.S. and the uh, Cuba just uh, about a year ago or so, uh, maybe two years ago. Uh, let me just say one thing. Have you ever heard in history, have you heard in history when the most powerful country taken in a historical period, has to negotiate with a country that in comparison is, I wouldn't say zero, but economically and socially have all sorts of problems. They would not set one condition, and the other, the one who really has no capacity is the one who sets the condition for what the negotiation should be about. This negotiation between Cuba Castro has put all sorts of conditions on the United States. Castro, who is bankrupt, has nothing, people are in misery. While we are the most powerful nation in the world, and the only thing we have said as a condition, vague, vague concepts like human rights. Well, prove it! Do you believe in human rights? Liberate people in Cuba. Do you want to have investments in Cuba? Do you realize that those investments in Cuba go to the state? And the state is the one who distributes them afterwards? Don't we realize that? Are we the most powerful nation? I mean, and I, I'm not trying to say that we should smear it or put in the face of a ah, we are so powerful. No, but it's the truth. You can't deny the truth. The truth is exactly this. We are the number one nation in the world. Maybe we don't want it or whatever, but we are. Now I'm going to show you in this video parts of Havana, how they look today. When a tourist goes to Havana, this is how it starts off. They are taken to the nice hotels. Melia has built hotels. Investments all over the place in terms of, how do you say this, hoteleria, or hotel businesses and so forth. But what about the people in general? What, 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 what? I mean, you know, the propaganda is one thing, and the, the reality of what's going on is another. 
Cuba today, from that point of view, unfortunately, no matter what they say, is a total, in my opinion. Now, from that point of view, I'm a liberal. I'm a conservative, as you could guess. But in many ways, in liberal in the sense that I accept opinions of others, and I don't criticize them for them. I may disagree with them, yes, that's another story. Because I think one has the right to express their opinion. And this is what very often people tend to forget, that we have to respect the opinions of others, listen and so forth. And, but the, 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 the whole situation, going back to your question, I mean, do you realize that the United States today, in many ways, is not playing the role that it should be playing. You know, everything is done for the poor. I, 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 I don't want to give the impression here that I'm not 100% in favor of doing things for the poor. No, we are, and we have an obligation. I'm not denying the fact that in Cuba there were also injustices. I don't deny that. But were the injustice in Havana, and I repeat this with emphasis, were the injustice in Havana worse than in Mexico City, worse than in Caracas, worse than in La Paz, worse than even in Buenos Aires? Were they? Look at history. Culturally, Cuba was one of the most advanced countries in Latin America. And the World Bank declared Cuba the number one country in terms of economic development. Maybe one or two, I think it was one. And now they claim that everything prior to Fidel Castro was what, gambling? And worse, prostitution? As, as I was saying before, I mean, prostitution goes to New York. I mean, most, you know, I get upset that, especially when they tell you, oh, women in, in, in Havana were off very free going and so That's not true. That is not true. Families in Cuba, there were very, very many. I mean, um, there were, of course, there were some, like they are here. Shall we put the, yes? Yeah, I cheers for you. Until I also left. What's your name? Antonio Galloso. Ah, si, yo soy yes. And now I tell people I'm Cubanski da Ruski niet. Cuban? Yes. Russian? No. <laughs> no, no, but it's, it, it's true. I mean, you know. It, I am the first one, I admit that Cuba was not perfect. According to Marx's theory, the, the revolution should have occurred in many other countries prior to Cuba. I mean, Cuba, I'm, I'm bragging, Cuba had a highly sophisticated society in many respects. There were abuses, yes. We were selfish to a certain extent. We like the yacht club and the country club. And we like, you know, high society, including my own family. I mean, special cousins and so on. But where, and look at New York. 
I'm, I'm not defending that, because I mean, the more money you have, the more intelligence you have, the more you should use it for the benefit of the poor. Yes. But don't force people to do certain things, which for whatever reason, sometimes they're not capable of doing for, for whatever reason. Do I do wrong in defending the honor of Cuba? I love Cuba. I love Cuba because of my tradition. Even though I was accused, I was accused in Havana when I was saying about Fidel Castro. I said, oh, Alberto, you don't understand the Cubans. The Cubans are gay, okay, in the old terminology of what gay is all about. The Cubans are, you know, happy people. And it can never, communists will never, never be accepted in Cuba because we're very independent, which is true, we're very independent. And I too. are you really sure? And he said, no, about you, because you were brought up in Europe, in Switzerland, or England, especially England. You don't understand, you have a British mentality. I said, I don't have a British, I have a, I'm proud to be a Cuban. And I'm proud of my ancestors, all my, all my relations. But I realized that at the same time, there were deficiencies in Cuba, there's no doubt. I mean, I don't deny that. I don't think anybody would deny it. Recognize the deficiencies that Cuba had and try to overcome them, but not the way it was done. But the way it was done was, and, and mind you, I, I, I want to be very frank with you. In comparison to many other Cubans, I'm the fortunate one because I managed to redo my life here. Some Cubans who didn't have the education I had were not able to do so the same way I did. And I had a wonderful wife too. I'm sorry, I always mentioned my wife. The mother of my children. She was a real mother to the children. And to the very last minute, well, I think it's, let's show the video. Um, very much, I mean, I hope you haven't been bored too much with all my stories. But there's one thing I do want to say, and that is that I love Cuba. I love my family and all the education I received through the many years. My European education, I'm grateful to the education I got in, in England, uh, in Switzerland, and all over Europe. And of course, La Universidad de Villanueva. And the way they were treated is unbelievable by the Castro regime. And uh, the last thing I want to say is, I am proud to be an American. I think America has showed its generosity and its love for all of us. And I think every single Cuban should be thankful to the United States, to this great country that is the last bastion of freedom in the world today. Thank you very much. Alberto, I just wanted to thank you on behalf of all of us at the Institute for
an extraordinary uh, presentation. And um, I wanted to thank you again for your remarkable service to this country, to our school, and to the cause of freedom. And I, I after having heard what you just said about the uh, about how Fidel Castro took power and the particular uh, lessons that you gave us, I wanted to commend to your attention a book for those of you who might be interested in this. It's called The Anatomy of Communist Takeovers. It is a co collective volume written in 1971. The editor is Professor Thomas Hammond of the University of Virginia. It's published by Yale University Press. Uh, there are uh, a couple of dozen chapters there about all of the communist takeovers, including the Cuban one, uh, that took place, as well as the major uh, communist takeover attempts that failed. And there is a whole taxonomy of the methods by which this was done, and you reviewed so many exactly of those methods. It's a remarkable, a remarkable book um, that n nobody will tell you about, but you've heard about it here. It's called The Anatomy of Communist Takeovers, and if the communists haven't removed it from the libraries, you might find it there. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming, and uh, all the best.